0: If you were to write on a piece of paper, who are the folks you trust the most? Who do you go to for counsel? and maybe, you know, levels, one, two and three? Who are the folks, you know, no matter what you'd call this person to ask for advice? And who are the folks that you might occasionally reach out to and who are the folks you do later? And if you put those names down, and then just think about the backgrounds of those people, and mm. I think most people might look at that and say, "Oh wow, Like if I'm going to someone for real advice, none of them are racialized. Hmm. Maybe they're all men, or maybe they're all folks who've been born in Canada, or maybe they're all folks who have postgraduate degrees. But I think first we have to look at our own life honestly and say, you know, to what extent are we truly connected to folks
1: outside of our own backgrounds? I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. Sparked by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, protests have been occurring around the world for the last number of weeks. And As today's guest recently wrote, current interest in anti-black racism is unprecedented. Amongst all this frustration and pain and grief being expressed right now is also an incredible opportunity to listen and rethink life in our communities. In today's episode, I'm speaking to a community leader in Toronto who's been working towards a more just city for years. My name is Kofi Hope. I am a
0: man who wears many hats at the moment. I work at a think tank in Toronto, a research institute called the Wellesley Institute, which works around building a society where everyone has equal access to living a healthy and fruitful and dignified life and thinks about the social determinants of health. So I do some Policy work as a senior advisor there. I also do some consulting work. Uh, I'm the co founder of a new startup called Monumental, which is focused around supporting organizations on strategy and programs to help us achieve a just recovery from COVID. And I do some teaching through at U of T in a variety of roles, and we'll be continuing to do that in the upcoming year. So, yeah, I, I'm in a lot of different places, and then I sit on board of directors for a couple organizations and do some community volunteer work and i think you know the common thread through all of that is a dedication to this idea of social justice building a society that is equitable building a society where we all have a chance to live lives with dignity that we have freedom from the many ills out there, including lack of meaningful employment, including freedom from um, insecure housing, addictions, uh, racism, all the different isms. And it is a dream which I do not think will be attained within my lifetime. Uh, but that doesn't mean it isn't a dream that's worth fighting for and striving for. And everybody does your part in what I think of as a great historical movement that we've inherited from those before us and and those coming ahead of us will continue. And so within that, I'm somebody who's interested in cities. I'm someone who's interested in storytelling and the use of storytelling. I'm someone who's interested in leadership um, and I am very interested in people. Uh, my life has been modeled around trying to connect with people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of places, and tapping into the collective wisdom that can come from unexpected places and, and relationships. And so that's something that's kind of key to me. Uh, and a metrics for the success of my life is keeping a vast, diverse and interesting group of of people around me and always expanding that as i can
1: my conversation with kofi covers a wide range of issues including what a just city could look like how power informs our cities and how they're built and the importance of truly understanding the lived experience of communities in order to understand how change can impact those folks living there so let's get started uh and thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with us in the midst of all those hats that you're wearing and all the things that, uh, that you're doing. No um, problem. so wanted to, to talk to you, uh, you know, you've been working on issues around, uh, equity, uh, racism for, for a lot of years now. Uh, so just wanted to check in on, uh, what the last week has been like for you and how you're doing. Yeah,
0: no, I'm, I'm doing okay. It's, it's been a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, I had a column that came out on the weekend in the Toronto Star where I used the terms kind of emotionally exhausted, mm-hmm. um, because you know, COVID is been a difficult time for all of us, and then you throw onto it um, what's happened in the United States and. You know, I was just saying in an earlier conversation for folks, when these kind of issues like George Floyd's death happen, it's not just about that issue. Many times it's a trigger point for all of the injustice, the discrimination that you've experienced, that maybe you saw your parents experience, that mm-hmm. those close to you experienced. and And sometimes those emotions that we have to keep in check, that is the breaking point where they all come out. And so, Um, I'm good, but there's a lot of hurt of others and of the world and, and in my own heart that I've been processing over this time, but there's also been a lot of hope in seeing all those young people of all different backgrounds march and carry signs showing a commitment to black lives. Uh, is not something I would have expected even a year ago to see on that scale across the U.S. Um, I'm hopeful many of my peers are kind of cynical because every organization now wants to talk about anti-black racism, a term which even a year ago, even two months ago, many people did not understand or want to say or mm-hmm. would, would always question. Um and some people are cynical about how long is this gonna last and, and what is this to do with PR and public relations? Um, and I'm sure some of it is about that, but I'm also super hopeful to say, hey, this maybe this could be a turning point and you never change the whole system in one go. But what I'm interested about are, are people who are actually committed to this work now and, and want to build on this opportunity. And I think as you create victories, and share them and disseminate them widely. That's how you, how you feed a movement for change.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, wonderful. And and that's uh that's a really helpful uh, frame because I, I, you know, some conversations uh, I've been having have been along those lines, like t- sort of, uh, uh, you know, talking about the new cycle, uh, and is this something that's just gonna, you know, go away when the next thing comes up. But I, but it really is, it feels anyways, like, like a pretty unique opportunity and, and, um, you know, the cynic and folks should, uh, you know, at least try to capitalize on on the movement and the attention that's happening in the, in the harder conversations that have hap- that are happening now that um, were ignored, especially amongst polite Canadians uh, that tend to tell, you know, have the narrative of, you know, that things are happening down south, but not not in our country. So um, w- when we're when we're talking about um, equitable cities um you know you articulated earlier a number of, of areas that's that you're you're concerned about. Um, what does it mean for you to have an build an equitable city?
0: Yeah, I go to the city of a just city right mm. what is um, what is a just city? what is a city that you know fully respects the human rights of every resident and allows for a human flourishing right so not just our civic and political rights but also the economic rights we all have the right to be housed the right to have gainful employment if we're looking for it the right to have access to education that is of the same quality that kids who live in a million dollar home get that you can get that same quality of education if you're living in in subsidized housing and so um When I think of the elements, like what makes up a just city or what makes up an out city, it's it's achieving that. But I think there's a second part to it, which is in our cities, in our society in Canada, we're blessed that we're not dealing with a resource deficit. It is not that we do not have the material resources to provide housing for every Canadian. Mm. It's not the case. It's not the case that we don't have enough food in this country. Even forget um, things that we import. Even within this country, we have enough food to provide nutritious food to all Canadians. Um, you know, we have the intellectual resources and we have the, the medical professionals to provide everyone with um, the same kind of health care and treatment. But we don't in any of those areas. And the reason why is it has to do with power. It's a, it's a distribution question, but that has to do with power and power being who has the ability to influence the system to access resources and who decides how they're distributed. And, you know, uh, I think a lot can come from education and from appealing to our better angels. But history shows us power doesn't shift and resources don't. Get redistributed just from playing off of people's consciences mm. and just by getting people empowered to look at the world differently. Actually, it's pressure that has the relinquishing of power, and it's actually taking away power from some and giving it to others that leads to that balancing. And so, to me, at the heart of a just city is a city where power is more evenly distributed, which means that um, citizens are much more empowered. That we have a much deeper democracy that allows more decisions in how the city is built and how the city's resources are allocated. And that has leadership um, because leadership is a proxy for communities, but leadership that is a good representation of all the different interests that are within the city. And so, you know. And maybe that's kind of how we get to the just city. But I think it's also inherently part of it is a just city is also a city that has much deeper democracy and where power is much more evenly distributed uh, across various communities and interest groups.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about a deeper democracy, can you can maybe uh, talk about a, a little more about what that could actually look like as compared to some of the systems that we might have in place today in our cities?
0: Yeah, well. First and foremost, it looks at a much better system of public consultations, Mm -hmm. right? It's when decisions are being made uh, from a planning perspective or research perspective. We don't say, well, we did one conversation at 6 p.m. at the local library and it was all middle aged white homeowners or retired folks that showed up and we talked to them for an hour and they liked our plan. So, oh yeah, we consulted, mm-hmm. right? It, we have to have better means for allowing citizen input in ideas. And we could you know talk deeper about that, but whether it's doing cons- uh, consultations differently, whether it's using online resources and platforms as a way to allow more people to add to the conversation, which I think have some promise, but could also replicate some of these same mm-hmm. imbalances. Um, I do believe it's things like having uh, citizen advisory panels that help to provide that expertise to bureaucrats as they're making decisions. I know in the city of Toronto, you know, there's a lived experience of poverty um, kind of advisory group where folks who have experienced poverty are able to be at the table and making sure that work that would forward the poverty reduction strategy is informed. Um, by people who've actually lived it, and they're looking at doing different um, consultative groups for other communities across the city. I think that's part of it too. I think also, and this is getting really into the political scientist of me, but you think about it, most of our political systems were built for like the realities of the 1700s, <laughs> 1800s at best, yeah. right? And yeah. like, we don't run corporations like they did in the 1700s. We don't run universities like they did in the 1700s. You know, we, d- we don't run hospitals like they did in the 1700s, but we run our parliaments and our city halls and our governments in many ways similar to, to that age. And so I think it's also uh, reform of our of our of our how we approach elections, of how we approach kind of partisan politics in the city of Toronto. We moved in the opposite direction, right? There was recommendations to expand the size of council. And we had a provincial government who decided to go in the opposite direction to mm-hmm. reduce the size of council, right? And, and so I think there we needed conversations about what does representation look like in the 21st century with such diverse societies? And and where do elections and elect- to leaders and city councils and all that sort of stuff. What do they need to look like so that people, so they build back their legitimacy. Like, mm-hmm. I've been part of lots of studies and read lots of datas. Toronto City Council has the lowest level of trust of any major institution in the city of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? it, which, is, which is crazy, but that's the reality. So obviously, and you look at the US, there's like negative trust for every branch of government, every level of government now. And so and ironically many times the most trusted government institution is the police which is already in this crisis yeah, so right. if that's the gold standard it shows you that our institutions need to evolve better to to meet the times
1: mhm and the the the, the point uh, you make about um about how we talk to communities, that's that's something in our own practice we've, we've struggled with a lot because what we find is uh, working with different communities is that folks um, are looking to chase numbers. So they can say we talked to 2,000 people or 5,000 people or what have you, uh, regardless of the diversity of those people. Um, sort of the number just gives it a level of legitimacy that you can check the box that, okay, we've talked to the community um, and we've been trying to, uh, push ourselves, push push our practice, push our clients to um, s- have a lot more in-depth understanding of issues and lived experience of folks. And if that has to come uh, at the expense of uh, just pure numbers, um, the point is new and true understanding uh, of issues and new perspectives and, and understanding expertise is something that doesn't necessarily have to have a university degree attached to it. Um, and so that's, that's been something that's been a real challenge. And of course that, that is connected as you say, all the way through how folks get elected, um, how they get funded through their elections and all those kinds of things. It's, a uh, um, yeah, but I I hadn't heard heard it described as the uh the 1700s model which is uh which is spot on and the the lack of evolution. Uh yeah, we're we're running into that from a from a trust perspective uh in every way shape and form now and it's uh something's got to be done. Um so when we're talking about um the, the process of city building. So where we, where we put our jobs, uh, how people move through the city. Um, are there particular, um, blind spots that you you've observed in how that gets done? And I guess from the, from the process of how our cities get built, there's, there, there's uh, a a process aspect to it and then there's the Mm -hmm. outcomes aspect. and, And maybe you could speak to how those two, um, interrelate or don't uh in in the kind of the the city that we end up with and how people experience it
0: hmm yeah there's a lot to unpack Yes. Yeah. So let, me, let,
1: me, <laughs> let me give it a stab.
0: i mean i think when we're thinking about okay so you asked about blind spots so let me maybe start with that yeah. because i think if we're thinking from an equity or justice standpoint very few let's take like race as an example very few policies, municipal policies, if any, maybe like 1% of the majority that come out will explicitly speak to race at all. Hmm. Just like most policies are not going to speak directly to poverty, they're not going to speak to gender, they just don't speak to these issues. But it doesn't mean that they're neutral. They still have effects that uh, are real for racialized people, for women, for indigenous folks, for others. It's just those become, quote unquote, unintended side effects of policy. And so. Part of it is I think we just have this blind spot in general that sees city building as a technical enterprise and one about if we just correctly measure and if we just correctly align with certain amounts of data and certain models that we will get the best outcomes. And, and, And there's huge blind spots based in those assumptions because, you know, very few things in this world are truly just simply objective and colorblind and just about the facts. And as we Mm. see, like, let's look at COVID, right? Where in theory, oh, this is a raw science problem. It's a virus. You know, it's this little kind of molecule that's spreading through a population group. And if we just take a facts based evidence approach, you know, we can solve it. But we're seeing that that approach actually demands thinking about race. It actually meant mm-hmm. thinking about poverty. It actually means thinking about the type of work people are doing, like <laughs> that there are all of these lenses that have to be considered to fully get a grasp, even on that very, you know, biology based medical crisis. So certainly if you're thinking about a city that really works well, a city that's accessible to everyone, you know, a green city, a resilient city, one of the first blind spots is almost any, program, I think, or policy of consequence, there needs to be some sort of equity analysis of it. Somebody needs to sit down and go through it. And there's ways and there's methodologies. But to think about how is this going to impact different communities? And who is going to truly benefit from this? And who is truly a stakeholder in this policy? And then you know, there's someone, because I'm doing a project around consultation right now, and there's a cool model someone had, which was saying, okay, let's just talk about who has a stake, in the issue we're going to consult about and then let's talk about power who has power to actually influence this and who mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. and trying to really triangulate on those folks who have a real stake in the issue and have very little power those are the folks if you want to rack up numbers we need to be racking up numbers in that <laughs> place in the kind of Venn Gryogram where lack of power and real vested interest align but so often you know mm-hmm. it is mainly driven by those with the most power and some degree of interest, um, but maybe not having as, you know, many times it's the interest of homeowners and their, their property value, yeah, which is an interest. But, you know, I think there's other more critical ones to consider. So I think that's that's part of it. I think um, if we're thinking about the process to what comes out, it's also recognizing that um, when you think about policy and blind spots, that they're always going to be there, that no one is ever going to be able to see all the different angles and understand all the different outcomes. But the more that folks from diverse communities are at the table and that folks creating policy have real lines of sight to neighborhoods increases the likelihood that somewhere along that process of something going from a design to a policy to something that's implemented, that there'll be some communication to say, "Hey, you're missing this. You're not thinking about mm-hmm. that." Mm-hmm. You know, I used this example earlier today in a conversation. You think about the Eglinton LRT in the city of Toronto. So it was, and may still be, the biggest infrastructure project in the country. It's more than a billion dollars. It's putting a subway across Eglinton Avenue, one of the main uh, east-west thoroughways. Great. At the one end is Weston Mount Dennis. Um, actually an area of the city I've got lots of connections to through family and other pieces but one of the more lower income parts of the city and it connects to some parts in Scarborough which are also more marginalized and so on theory like oh this is great it's connecting not only is it connecting those communities at the end but across the line there are a lot of working class lower income communities that now will have more access to transit this is great um But when you go and I've done it, focus groups in Weston Mount Dennis, when you talk to folks who are near, you know, Allen Road in Eglinton, the store owners in Little Jamaica, kind of the heart for kind of Caribbean black Toronto, people are not celebrating that project. They're really pissed off because for the businesses, their businesses were destroyed. And now hmm. everyone is saying, well, that's the end of little Jamaica because it's going to be people are going to swoop in there and purchase the properties. Mm-hmm, people in Weston right. Mount Dennis are scared to death that they won't be able to afford to live in their neighborhood. And people will literally say to me, like, why is it, you know, that it seems city will only invest right in the lead up to middle class people moving into our neighborhood. Mm. Right. That is the Mm. perception in a lot of Toronto is like, okay, if good stuff is coming, that means we're going to be leaving soon. Mm. And and now I think a lot of policymakers are like, yeah, we did the right thing with the crosstown, but we didn't think about displacement or gentrification. We didn't think about areas of cultural significance that maybe needed to be protected. And, you know, people have, have come up with great models on how you can think about infrastructure projects and ensuring people stay in pace, whether it's having a community land trust. It's going to start buying up these properties when they're there to ensure that they're held for local people, whether it's actually, you know, inclusionary zoning. So all the new builds have to have affordable housing built into it, whether it's designating areas of cultural or artistic significance to say, hey, we don't want all the artists kicked out of the lofts, you know, so that we can have, you know, great studios and, you know. <laughs> build a loblaws at the bottom but we lose the vibrancy and the cultural <laughs> heritage of this area um so there are things to do but it's we have to think about it but the irony with the Eglinton lrt is like as soon as it was announced black folks were talking about what is this going to do to little jamaica hmm. you know as soon as it was announced people in communities were talking about oh does that mean gentrification is coming and so it's not like There's a huge excuse for policymakers to have been unaware of it. It's just if you look at these neighborhoods just as, you know, literally neighborhoods on a map and you're just thinking about, oh, you know, what's going to get us the most passengers per square kilometer of track, you know, and, and, and it just becomes a scientific or an engineering problem. Then you're going to have all kinds of unintended consequences and you're going to get in the situation where the people who are most supposed to benefit from a project are actually the ones who are most against it. Mm, mm. Which is which is absurd and almost obscene that we could be in that place in 2020. But it's what happens when we build the city without folks at the table who are representative of the entirety of the city.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's it's also interesting that, like you mentioned, looking at a map, the idea of of scale matters and what we've, you know, there's any number of, uh, your example and hundreds of thousands of others probably that talk about when you think only of the system and the infrastructure system or the technical system or the citywide system, um, people get forgotten. Uh, and then, uh, that's magnified in, in different kinds of communities, whether racialized communities or other kinds of communities, um, and it, it actually makes me think about a, a tool that we use, um, a, a futures triangle that's that talks about kind of, you know, the future isn't this one thing. It isn't created by one thing. It, it, it has the, the pull factor. So the desired future that folks want for for the community. It's got the push factor. So all these influences that are that are informing the reality of today. So that could be technology that could be social movements. But then there's this idea of weight of the past and how we often talk about, um, things like infrastructure as being a weight. So you build a city a certain way and then that, that holds you in a certain position. But what the conversation in the last few weeks has really gotten me thinking about, um, political structures, social structures that create their own kind of weight and how, uh, city building professions have their own weight in terms of, the, the old we've done this this way for the past number of decades um, and the, how, how we end up here in 2020, like you say, it's it's uh, it's really um, trying to keep pushing that awareness so that the weight gets lifted <laughs> in in certain ways. Yeah. And I
0: think and grounding it in our values. Right. And that's why I like this idea of a just city of saying, mm. why, like, why are we even building a city? like for what purpose, right? Is it because we want to move up on the economist rankings as best city in the world? <laughs> and, you know, we want to be this global hub and, you know, the, the charts can show how many billionaires we have per capita compared to Singapore and Hong Kong and these things. Or are we building it because we want to have the most humane place for as many people as possible to live in? And then that forces us to, to ask different questions as we're going through the exercise of city building um, and to question things that we just take. So one of my favorite city building assumptions, right? Is this idea that mixed neighborhoods are better, right? That we want mixed income communities. We want racial diversity, that this is a good. And most people would say, oh, and that's a value. And they say, yeah, yeah, we believe it. And that's part of our assumption and practice. But where is the movement out there That's fighting to diversify our high income neighborhoods, (laughs) if that's true. Mm -hmm. Right. We've got lots of people fighting to diversify our low income communities and say, oh, we need to put, you know, we need to do a mixed development. We need to tear down this public housing and rebuild it. I don't think I've heard any city councilor saying Rosedale is a defective neighborhood in Toronto. For those those who don't know, one of the more higher income neighborhoods in the city. I've rarely heard people say it's a defective neighborhood because it's all millionaires or people who were lucky enough to buy homes that are now in the Mm -hmm. millions. And, and we need to knock down some of those mansions to build public housing because it'll make a mixed community and that's the better kind of community. (laughs) We don't hear that. So then it's like, well, what do we really believe? And and, and that's where also people call us on our our bullshit, right? You talk to people in communities that are going through redevelopment, and they'll ask you questions like that, like like say, yeah, you know, there were issues with our community, but why is it that so much money is being spent that something is happening that that has me leave, you know, with the first development, say, of Regent Park, that has me waiting eight years to come back to my neighborhood? Hmm. And who is this about again? This was supposed to be about me? This is supposed to be about benefiting me, but it doesn't seem that way. And and I can't help but notice that we're right beside downtown, and this is prime real estate. Like, you know, some of our uh, very technical assumptions that we make and we all swallow hook, line, and sinker would benefit a lot from talking to those who are outside of the margins of power and understanding how they see it. Mm -hmm. And then you would recognize that. Maybe maybe our assumptions aren't as unbiased as we thought, and maybe the values that we say are embedded are actually not that apparent to other folks. Um, And maybe if they really were, it would require us to do things very differently. Um, But those are tough conversations to have. But those are conversations we have to have. And if we're having them at the table with not just You know, everyone here did a master's in planning at U of T or everyone here, you know, was in the civil service or we've got some private sector and some this and that. No, Mm -hmm. like there have to also be residents, community members, folks representing diverse interests. um, And that will get us to better outcomes. I I truly believe. Um, And it's we can talk more in detail. It's not as simple as just taking someone who's experienced poverty and dropping them into the boardroom and expecting that's going to transform culture. But there is a model where where you, you can look around that table, and in a meaningful way, people from very different backgrounds can all be looking at a problem, giving their individual perspectives, and you get policy that just has much less blind spots built into it.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you mentioned the the technical bias, I, th- I think that's, you know, so much of, of city building um, is couched in the technical, uh, in order to insulate it from other, other challenges, right? So, well, it's in this bylaw, even though the bylaw is completely made up, but it, 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 you know, insulates you from that. And then, and then that's, that's actually, it feels like one of the most dangerous things that can happen is if it gets positioned there to keep people away from it. Um, but other viewpoints and (laughs) outside of the, the, the core of power. And that's, you know, the folks that have the control of creating these things, um, If it can't stand up to those tests, then, you know, it's it's not it's not as strong as as uh, as they would assume or hope i guess yeah
0: yeah and like you say we make these things so difficult and so convoluted and so much terminology and so many acronyms which is a mechanism of power right for sure it's to keep people out of the conversation for sure and it also justifies all the money we pay for our advanced degrees <laughs> because then we enter some yeah. exclusive club that only other folks who follow that route Can actually be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for city building, which has been a bit of an elite profession and how it's been understood, there's such an obligation to try to demystify it, to take the complexity out of it. Um, And when you force people to have that, it challenges things, right? Mm -hmm. It challenges people to be like, well, why can't we have these developments in residential areas, you know, why is it so hard to just have a food truck or just to go sell something on the corner that you, you know, you've worked on in your house? Like, why is it that, you know, when people start asking these questions and you pull away the technical kind of mumbo jumbo that, that, that makes it hard to get to the heart of it, you have to respond and say, well, I don't know why. Maybe it's like that. Cause we've always done it that way. Mm hmm. Maybe it's like that because it was in someone's interest to restrict you from being able to sell easily at the side of the street. And maybe we could do that. Right. And so but it's it comes when city builders see themselves as communicators and part of their job is to have a widened conversation about the city with as many people as possible, Mm -hmm. Um, not just to, to be in echo chambers. And this is not just city building. Right. So many. All professions, institutions, for sure. Elite professions yeah. of yeah. our, you know, I call it managerial professional class in our modern society functions that way out of having exclusive access to knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, that's how people make their incomes is you need to pay me to explain this system to you. Yeah. That's affecting your own life. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I find, you know, when we work in communities where, uh, perhaps there's less, um, uh, experience with with technical professionals and the likes. Uh, it's it's actually a really refreshing reset uh, for my own brain and my own communication ability to uh, talk to folks that that ask those fundamental questions um, that have so many assumptions thrown out the window. And say oh yeah, I, I, I have no idea why this bylaw is the way it is, or if I, if I know to explain it in a way that's actually engaging and understandable. And, and it's, um, it's, uh, and, and I, I noticed those moments when I've gone too far into, you know, I've been in too many council chambers or <laughs> too many boardrooms. Um, and it's actually a, a refreshing reset, but that's the, should be the default of, of the practice, I think. So, um, yeah, yeah. A constant, a constant, uh, reminder and focus um, I wonder if you could speak about the idea of intersectionality uh, and how that relates to um, just cities I mean it 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 relates to a lot of what we've been talking about but I think it's a it's a concept that that has been coming up more and more lately uh, in the conversations over the previous weeks and and if you could maybe speak to why that's such an important um, concept and frame for us to understand our cities
0: um, yeah so I'm not I think there's people who are more versed on intersectionality than i am but i i have a very kind of uh what i hope is for for, for communicating a, a kind of simple way to look at it which is human beings are complex and we all have multiple identities that are part of who we are um and many times in society we just look at what's easily apparent someone the color of someone's skin you know how they present their gender whether we see an obvious, um, physical ability or, or disability. And, and many times we stick with kind of, you know, race as saying, oh, that person's a white person, that person's a black person or this. Usually we take a mono approach to identity Mm. where we take one thing and say, this will explain who that person is. And internet intersectionality would say, no, we are We exist at the intersections of all the various parts of who we are and our experience and specifically our experience of barriers and oppression in society is going to come at that intersection point. Hmm. So to say, you know, a you could have two people who have black identity. One could have been born in Canada, has a master's degree, you know, is in an upper middle class background speaks English fluently, is a straight man, Christian heritage. You could have someone else who's a black person, but a woman who's uh, of Muslim heritage, who's a newcomer to Canada, um, maybe has a, a physical disability. <laughs> their ex- so The experience of those two individuals, though they share that black part to their identity, is going to be mm-hmm. very different because mm-hmm. of the other parts of their identity that intersect with their blackness. And so it's 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 a way to explain just that complexity of experience, and that if we simply use one part of someone's identity to understand their struggle, we actually lose a lot, and you have to look at the totality to also understand how within communities there are an oppression that manifests right there can be sexism within a certain cultural group mm-hmm. right, and so yes, they may face barriers based on that cultural group, but even within the group, there could be sexism, there could be homophobia, there could be, you know, all, all sorts of other isms that manifest. And so I think it's saying, you know, this is not your 1960s understanding of diversity. It's not just black, white, it's not just people of color, white folks. There's actually a lot more going on. It's actually a lot more complex and we need to use that lens. And so, you know, we've talked about in Canada, gender-based budgeting, Hmm. which I think is important. It's really important to think about the gender dynamics in our budget, but realizing that, you know, all the folks who who may have a gender identity as women experience a society very different indigenous women have a very different experience in our cities than white women do. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, they have common experiences that, that a gender-based lens would unearth, but if that's not an intersectional lens, that's going to erase the voices and experiences of many of the most vulnerable women from that conversation, just as an example. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's it's a challenging um, concept because it sometimes makes the work <laughs> of understanding people and difference seems so complex and seem so overwhelming. Um, and you're never gonna have a policy that thinks about every single possible um, intersection that could happen in diversity within a society. But on the other hand, to simply ignore it and to simply look at people's identity in, in binaries, you lose all the nuance that's required to really have, I think, human policies or, or, or human, um, cities. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think the, uh, exactly to your point on, on having things as, as binary, it's so much easier, (laughs) but it's not nearly as, uh, effective to build the kind of cities that we want. And, and, um, you know, I really, really appreciate that, that perspective and, and, um, leads me to my, to, my second last question for you Um, Mm -hmm. related to your uh, recent piece that you, you put in the, in the Toronto star that's uh, been causing your, uh, phone or your zoom or whatever to ring off the <laughs> to ring off the hook <laughs> um yes. you, you talked about creating right that that creating right relations isn't a isn't an event but a process um we we've talked a, a, a lot of elements that contribute to it but maybe you can um share with us some thoughts on uh, ways that folks that are contributing to the building of cities um can begin to build those relations uh and what are what are some of the the starting points that they can they can take to, to build those right relations?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think first it starts with yourself and then a little bit of honest self inquiry. You know, there's one activity that we do in a lot of this anti-racism training that, uh, and this is just a rough version of it, but you know, if you were to write on a piece of paper, who are the folks you trust the most? Who do you go to for counsel? And maybe, you know, levels one, two, and three, who are the folks, you know, no matter what you'd call this person to ask for advice and who are the folks that you might occasionally reach out to and who are the folks you do later. And if you put those names down and then just think about the backgrounds of those people. And Mm. I think most people might look at that and say, oh, wow, like if I'm going to someone for real advice, none of them are racialized. Mm. Maybe they're all men. Or maybe they're all folks who've been born in Canada, or maybe they're all folks who have postgraduate degrees. But I think first we have to look at our own life honestly and say, you know, to what extent are we truly connected to folks outside of our own backgrounds? And everyone's going to answer that in a different way because that is, and it's not, you know, it's not like there's a right answer, like someone would be like, oh, I've got every single country and group and background <laughs> represented, I've, I'm I'm good. No, but it, it does let you know where, where your starting place is. and And if it's from a starting place like many of us, where most of the people we trust and we look to and that give us counsel are very similar versions of ourselves, then one of the first pieces is even thinking about in your own life. How do I start diversifying the folks I build relationships with, the folks I have connections to, um, and that's tough because there isn't one simple answer for that. Mm-hmm. And 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 racialized folks or diverse folks are not there for the just for the enrichment of your life <sighs> and for giving you a more yeah. robust friend network. Yeah. But if you can say, "Hey, I've got an issue that I'm not connecting with so and so," then you can really think about, "Well, how can I get engaged in the work with those communities?" Or how can I mentor folks for in office? Because that's, you can look at yourself, then look at your office, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I see in most offices in Toronto, I see a lot of diverse people who are at the security desk. I see a lot of diverse people who are, are cleaning staff, who are working in the shops at the bottom floor. But as I go farther up in these corporate towers, and as I move towards the room where I'm maybe having my meeting with folks, That diversity lessens and lessens and lessens and lessens until sometimes it disappears. Mm. And so asking yourself in your organization, you know, who's at the table, who's not? Mm -hmm. And if folks aren't, also it's not, okay. tomorrow we're going to hire two black folks and, you know, one folk of Asian heritage and we'll have fixed it. um, Because usually those rushed pieces don't lead to the successful outcomes. But it's saying, what's our strategy? What is our strategy to build out relationships in community to have some hiring and talent pipelines from more diverse groups to internally mentor? Because maybe there are lots of diverse folks here. They're just in entry level positions mm-hmm. and they seem to either leave or stay there. OK, well, what can we do internally around internal promotion and mentorship and coaching to build folks there? I think where I'm going in all of this is where it really is important to happen is at the level of human relationships and connections, right? right? Like, yes, it's great to read, but there's lots of people I know who, who can tell you all kinds of amazing things about anti-racism because they've read all the books. (laughs) But then I'm a little interesting in that I'll then go and look at their Facebook. And if all the pictures I see are all of them with other white folks, it's like, well, it's great. You know this, but like, Mm -hmm. where is this in your life where is this manifested in the people you partner with and the people you you choose to have come to your office as guest speakers as the people you do you do business with um and and so i think there is that for me i say inclusion and living an intercultural life we need to start thinking of as a civic virtue if we think of what are some of the things that that like and i'm a very Toronto centric person, these comments, I, I, I'll recognize that. But if we're thinking about Toronto and it's supposed to be the most diverse city in the world, then embracing and living and being part of a diverse life needs to be something that we all celebrate and work for. Right. And mm-hmm. the, and we have to say, hey, you know, our school in the most diverse city in the world is 90% white kids. There's a problem with that. Like, actually, if we want people to have a true Canadian, true Toronto experience, I need to be sending my kids to a school that looks more like the city. Right. right. Or I need to be questioning the administrators or other folks or thinking about the catchment area or what's happening um, to make it not versus saying, well, you know, I believe in all these great ideas, but my own life. I can just be as monocultural as possible, but I will make sure to like all the Black Lives Matter comments on Facebook or you know to read the right books. It comes down to how we live our lives and and who we connect with. and and so that's 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 a long journey. But it's for folks to even be to recognize that that's a journey worth going on, to mm-hmm. recognize that, you, mm-hmm. that to be truly committed to these things, um, you have to have relationships with the folks. Um, that you claim that you want to fight for or help. Otherwise, it's so easy to fall into a very paternalistic kind of relationship. Um, and I think of that, because well, you talk about right relations, especially in the context of indigenous people, mm-hmm. right? I know lots of folks who will speak, you know, about the importance of reconciliation, et cetera. But for all of us, especially for those of us who live in, 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 in urban centers, which don't have large indigenous populations, you know, it's always that question, but do you know anyone who's Indigenous? Have you ever gone to a reserve? Mm-hmm. You know, have you spent time working with Indigenous folks? Have you spent time listening? Because otherwise, if you just, your understanding comes from books and, and articles, that's that's a half-baked approach to reconciliation, right? Reconciliation is about right relationships between nations, and I think also between people. Mm-hmm. And And sometimes we actually have to intentionally seek it out. Like, I always talk about, This idea of gap years and so many um, wealthy kids, you know, uh, and well off kids or privileged folks will use a gap year to go overseas. And that's where I get to meet poor people. And that's where I hang out with folks in Africa and Central America. And I've got all these great pictures. And I used to always do talks at universities and say, that's great. There's nothing wrong with global citizenship. But if the only place you're having deep relationships with a poor person is on your gap year in India, mm-hmm. and then you come back home to Toronto and say, oh, look at those homeless people, and oh, I would never go to this neighborhood because it's so ghetto or it's so dangerous, then mm-hmm. really it's, that's highly problematic. And so I think a lot of times we seek to go everywhere but from home to live out some of these ideals. And it's like, how do we do it in our own neighborhood, in our own community? even from like, just how we spend money. Right. Mm -hmm. New York times said Scarborough has the best mix of ethnic restaurants in North America. Mm. So maybe one of the evenings, instead of, you know, spending $200 on another downtown restaurant, look something up in the inner suburbs and take your family out to a really great meal in a neighborhood that, you know, you wouldn't patronize otherwise. Like Mm -hmm. there's uh, and, and that's obviously just a very simple example, but I think it's just trying to see living a more diverse and inclusive life at the personal level as being one of the foundations for them in the professional and other uh, senses.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Thank you for that. That's uh, I, th- I think to, to really take it, you're, you're speaking about um, being intentional I think is, is really important. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, in the conversation that is this just going to, you know, the the conversations of the last few weeks, is that going to be something that passes? And I think if people are intentional and understand that it has to be, uh, actually lived, not just, I think your, your point about books versus actually living experiences, uh, is really, really important because there has you know, in particular, there has been a, a, a real push of, um, reading and learning in the last few weeks and that's not a bad thing but there's other subsequent steps and, and really to your point that this is um, you know in, in your piece that this is a process and not an event I think is really really you know the most important thing that that people understand that that it's it's ongoing and to your point when you when you introduced yourself that this is going to uh, this is a a lifetime <laughs> endeavor and a process for sure
2: mm-hmm.
1: um So, last question uh, that we ask everybody. uh, Can you tell me of a city that you love and why you love it? Hmm. (laughs) I'll tell you about a – great. I'll tell you about a city I love and that I also – I
0: don't know if – I wouldn't say hate because I love this city, but I also have a lot of problems with. And that's that's Barcelona. Hmm. I was just talking about it with my dad the other day because they went recently. I mean, what an amazingly planned city. Like, I just – I've been there a couple of times. I just love wandering around in Barcelona and, you know, all the little piazzas. The you know, the public squares that are at the end, it seems like of every street. Mm. And, and you've got all these different generations there playing and, you know, having some wine and the teenagers hanging out on their phones. But you've got everyone in this one public space and you'll go around an alley and suddenly you see an escalator to go up a set of steps <laughs> that, you know, in every other city you'd have to walk up. And you're like, wow, this is convenient. <laughs> um, and that mix of old and new and the architecture and, you know, beach and all that stuff. And, and it's just a lifestyle that you can't help but feel like that kind of, you know, Western European um, urban lifestyle being like, wow, this is almost as good as it gets for human beings. But then in Barcelona and so many of those cities I went to in Europe, you look at the folks who are immigrants, mm-hmm. you look at the folks who are newcomers there. You look at who's hustling on the beach selling watches. You look at who's handing out flyers to you for the restaurants. You look at, you know, who's on the corner, you know, selling products in the illegal economy. You look at all those pieces. And, and then you look at who's in power there and you realize, wow, when it comes to lifestyle and organization and urban planning and all those pieces, you know, I always feel Barcelona got it so right. When it comes to issues of equity and being intercultural and integrated folks, it just felt like and bo- all the times I'm chatting with folks, it feels like that place ha- has a long way to go. And I was surprised how many people in Europe in general you'd speak to and folks who were born in Europe and of more, you know, uh, traditional or white European background background. Um, Many times they would ask me about Montreal or Quebec. Mm. That was their understanding of Canada. And then you'd talk to new immigrant folks and everyone would be like, oh, Toronto, Brampton. I've got a cousin there. I've got a family there. That's what (laughs) we're trying to get to. Mm. And just even that perception showed me something about how how people perceive us and where they connect um, and and what we do really well and where our global reputation is. So, yeah, I love Barcelona. I would, um, if there were planes flying, I'd go there tomorrow and spend time (laughs) hanging out. Um, And going to museums and and, and all that sort of stuff. But when I'm in all of those great European cities, I also spend a lot of attention for where folks who who look more like me, where Mm -hmm. folks who who have recently arrived and are they fully getting to participate in the bounty of of that lifestyle that those societies have built? Mm -hmm. And when they have not it's kind of like, okay, maybe we need to take some of. And we're not the best in the world. Well, we're not the best as we could be, but I think we do a decent job in Canada. And it's kind of maybe we take some of our learnings mixed with some of their learnings about how to build humane cities and we can yeah, get something, right. you know, that is, you know, the, 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 the great city 3.0 or, or another level of, of building humane and just cities
1: hmm. That's really interesting insight, because I, I uh, happened to do my a semester of my master's degree uh, in Barcelona in 2000. <clears throat> and at that point, uh, a lot of the conversation of our professors was um, what was going on with so many folks from North Africa uh, coming to the city. And they were legitimately um, confused about what to do. With these folks and and how issues of housing and economy and things like that. And, and, and to your point, like it <clears throat> it it reflected how new some of these immigration issues were for these for these countries and how um, we don't have it solved. Um, but we've been working on it for longer. And, and that's a really interesting point about. um uh, yeah, if we could blend <laughs> some of those elements of, of, uh, the different, uh, different cities and, and countries and experiences, we could, could end up with something, uh, pretty, pretty special. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. it's,
0: it's, I think it's when you have a culture that has a very fixed understanding of identity and I recognize, you know, in in somewhere like barcelona you have catalan identity Mm -hmm. top of the larger identity of the spanish state so it's not that this is totally homogeneous but you do have a pretty fixed identity in many of these countries um and also a feeling that hey we we've achieved the best quality of life in the world so what would we have to learn from you right it's a total assimilation model like Mm, you should just be happy to be here and there's not actually much learning that we're going to do. You're just going to learn everything from us and you will become, you know, more civilized. And it's kind of a very colonial mindset. Um, one of the benefits maybe we have in Canada where we we have a bit of a weaker or less singular sense of national identity is we've been, it's allowed us to be a little more open in some mm-hmm. of these places um, to different expressions of Canadian-ness and of the Canadian experience. And I think that's that's just enriched us. As a whole, and I think that is the challenge um, for other Western nations, and especially in Europe, where populations are aging and economies are slowing down as a result. And unless we get robots to do everything, the way that that's going to be solved is 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 through increased immigration. Mm -hmm. But to do that in a successful way, versus you know building these wonderful historic cities with racialized suburbs or ghettos on the periphery, with people coming in, I think is, is, is a really disturbing future, but that we could easily face. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, in Toronto, we and in Canada, we we have our own issues, too. I We're sure. maybe a couple steps ahead, but it's easy for us to slide back. And mm-hmm. I yeah. think we all have to understand that, you know, what we've achieved, we have to fight for to maintain. And if we want to get to the next level, it won't happen through some kind of evolutionary process. The world is not going to get more equitable, more humane, uh, more sustainable, just through us sitting on our hands and you know, watching the years pass. It could move easily in the opposite direction unless good people stand up
1: and, and fight for what they want to see. Perfect way to end it. <laughs> Wonderful thought to end with. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to be with us today. And um, yeah, really, really great food for thought. And um, yeah, I hope to have you back on sometime soon. Great, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Difficult conversations are happening about race and power in our society, and they need to continue. As Kofi described, these changes are a process and not a single event. So, building a just city involves changes in the halls of power and the design of our systems right through to how each one of us lives our lives. It means a lot of hard work and a lot of discomfort, but it's essential to ensure everyone has a chance for a great life in our cities. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.